Okay, we're rolling. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another uh, no, to another episode of The Package Tourist, hosted by yours truly, The Package Tourist and the Magical Mystery Tour called Life, Matthew DBI's. Tonight, we are commemorating the 70th anniversary of one of the most famous goals in Stanley Cup Finals history. On April 21st, 1951, Bill Barocco of the Toronto Maple Leafs scored the cup-winning goal in Game 5 of the Stanley Cup playoffs against the Montreal Canadiens. Months after he scored that goal, Barocco disappeared under mysterious circumstances and his remains would not be found until 11 years later in 1962. Tonight's guest is a legend in hockey literature, Kevin Shea. Kevin lives in the greater Toronto area and has written 19 critically acclaimed volumes on hockey history, many of which have earned awards. When he is not writing, Kevin also serves as the editorial and education facilitator at the Hockey Hall of Fame in Toronto while also teaching hockey history courses at Seneca College. He has also been a tireless fundraiser for cancer research. In 2005, Kevin wrote a biography of Bill Barocco titled Barocco Without a Trace. Kevin, there have been many famous goals in Stanley Cup playoff history. Where does the Barocco goal rank in the pantheon of NHL Stanley Cup history? Well, it's so hard for me to be objective, and obviously I can't, Matthew, but I would have to say it's right at the very, very top. When it comes to to drama and intrigue, there is nothing like the goal that Barocco scored in 1951. How big a moment is the Barocco goal in the history of the Toronto Maple Leafs franchise? Well, there's so many goals. I mean, the, the Toronto Maple Leaf franchise, which... You know, preceding the Leafs, it was the St. Patrick's and it was the Arena Hockey Club before that. So we go back to 1917. And through those years, there have been some great victories, some tough times as well. Uh, certainly as the Maple Leafs, they've won 11 Stanley Cup championships. So, so there's lots of intrigue and, and lots of excitement there. But that 1951 Stanley Cup winning goal was really, really special. It was the first dynasty for the Maple Leafs. The, the team won four Stanley Cup championships in five years. And Bill Barocco was part of it from the beginning. Shouldn't even have been on the team very candidly, but he was on the team and, and there was a, a terrific lineup at that point. 1951, they're playing the Canadians. Every single game in that five-game series, which could have gone further, obviously, but, but in that five-game series to that point, went into overtime, including, obviously, the, the very final game. And so they were all decided in, in uh, OT. And then Bill Barocco, who was not a goal scorer by any means, he was much better known as a, as a body checker and as a terrific defensive defenseman, but he scores the goal, the most unlikely person to score the Stanley Cup winning goal. And then the the... Hurrah afterwards, the, the celebrations continued on, and then to have him disappear, as you mentioned, on a fishing trip, just added to the whole legacy, and it's linked all together because when they next won a Stanley Cup, it was 1962, and that was the year that his body was discovered in the, in the uh, very thick and, and swampy woods north of, of Cochrane, Ontario. So all the drama that goes with the actual on-ice goal and the subsequent drama as well makes it the most special goal in Toronto Maple Leaf history. Kevin, please set the stage for our listeners. How exactly did the Barucco goal take place? Can you paint a picture for us? Can you describe the action as it happened on that, on that glorious day 70 years ago? 
certainly. So they're going into game five, and as I mentioned moments ago, every game has gone into overtime to that point. It looks like the Montreal Canadiens are going to to win game four. They are up two game or two goals to one, and then uh, the Leafs pull Al Rollins, who's in goal. They pull him for an extra attacker. And Max Bentley gets the puck to Todd Sloan. Sloan scores a goal with just seconds to go in the period, and they're able to tie the game. So once again, we're going into overtime. So the coach, Joe Primo, who had been a legendary player for the Leafs prior to that, the coach takes Bill aside and said, look, you're gambling far too much. We can't have you pinching quite so much. We need you to really watch it there because should Maurice Richard or, or Elmer Locke or any number of players we could mention for the Montreal Canadiens, should any of them get a chance to, uh, to take off with the puck, we don't want it to be a two or three on one or even worse, a breakaway. So Bill promised that he would uh, he would be more, much more cautious and hanging around more to the you know the center ice area as much as anything. Well, it didn't quite work out that way. <laughs> the puck goes into Montreal's goal, and Howie Meeker takes it in behind the net. In the process of trying to get it out front, Jerry McNeil makes a stop, but he slips and falls, so he's on his behind at that point. Meeker gets the puck once again. He tries to dish it out front uh, to Cal Gardner, who's standing there, and the puck glances off Butch Bouchard of a Montreal Canadian skate and goes out to the face-off circle to the right of Jerry McNeil. Bill Barocco has to make a split-second decision. Okay, if he listens to what his coach said, he he retreats and heads back towards his end because Maurice Richard is right there looking to get the puck. Or he can go after it, and he gambles, and thank goodness he won. He, uh, he dives at the puck and backhands it, and it goes over the shoulder of Jerry McNeil at 2.53 of the overtime period to score the deciding goal. The Toronto Maple Leafs win the Stanley Cup, and Bill Barocco becomes an instant hero. Now, I had the honor and privilege of reading your book. And ladies and gentlemen, it's a fantastic book, Barucco, Without Trace. Please, if you're a hockey fan, especially if you're a Maple Leafs fan, please buy it. It's a fantastic book. Isn't there a famous photograph where Barucco, after he shot the puck, he was literally airborne, kind of like Bobby Orr was and when he scored that famous goal in 70 against the Blues? I mean, is that true, Barucco? Is, is there a photograph of him? He's, he's literally in midair after he made that shot. Yeah, that's exactly true. You, you just think about synchronicity. You just never know how things are going to go. There was a phalanx of photographers covering the game, as there would be for any kind of a playoff game, especially in Toronto, which was in many ways mecca for hockey in, in Canada, and especially playing against the Montreal Canadiens, an adversary going way, way back and continues to this day. But the photographers, and, and they probably split up their teams, but it seemed like they were terrific photographers in the end where the Montreal Canadiens were tending goal, which meant that they were there to watch as Barocco scored the goal. Now, they're using something called speed graphic cameras, which were anything but like the digital cameras that you and I know, Matthew. <laughs> and so, so what ends up happening is that there are two photographers on the... I don't know whether what side it would be, but we'll say to the right of Jerry McNeil, and there's one on the left of Jerry McNeil in the in the stands trying to get some pictures going, and all three photographers got the the photograph within split seconds of each other. The most famous one is one called the Tarovsky photograph, and and. Uh, and the Tarovskis were brothers who, who were really terrific marketers as well as great photographers. So that's the one that most people know. If people can just visualize
realize, and some of you may have seen the photo as well, it's taken from behind Barocco as he's, as he's airborne, and the puck is mid-air at that point on its way towards Jerry McNeil. And that's the one that we know so well. From the other side of the rink, there's a gentleman named Michael Burns taking a shot at exactly the same time. And you can see that Barocco is probably taken just a quarter of a second afterwards, but Barocco can see that the puck is about to enter the net. He's got a smile on his face. Huh. You can actually see him as he's airborne once again. Huh. There's another shot that was taken as well. So they're less well known, but there are three terrific shots of the 1951 Stanley Cup clinching uh, goal by Bill Barocco. Kevin, where, 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 where was Bill Barocco born and raised? There's a place in northern Ontario, Canada, called Timmins, Ontario. And he was born and raised there uh, to an immigrant family. He was the second born of three children to the, uh, the Barocco family there. They, uh, the father worked in the mines. Mother took care of things at home and also rented out a room to, uh, to boarders to get a little bit extra money. Uh, fairly poor family all in all, but they had what they needed and uh, grew up. And it turned out Alex, who was the oldest of them, Alex Barocco, never made it to the NHL, but he was probably the best hockey player in the family. He, uh, he played junior hockey, senior hockey. He went on to be a, a referee as well. Then there's Bill, and then there's a, a daughter named Anne, a sister named Anne, and she was the one who kept all the records of her brothers through the years. And it's through her who, uh, it's through her that we really have captured most of the history because she had all of the newspaper clippings and letters to and fro and things of that sort as well. So that was the family from Timmins, Ontario. When did the now you said uh, you said that that she uh, his sister Anne uh, kept the uh, Barocco archives and all that. When did she approach you? Did she break the approach to you and ask you to write the biography? Was it her that made the approach? No, it actually went the other way around. So it's kind of a fortuitous thing that happened. So if I could just to, to stretch out the story a tiny bit. So prior to my time working in hockey, I worked in the music industry. And, and so that, that plays a role here, and I'll explain it in just a moment's time. Um, actually, I'll explain it now. Is There was a band on our label, MCA Universal Records, a Canadian band, one of the uh, best-known Canadian bands there uh, called The Tragically Hip. So I had worked with them and helped helped with their career and uh, was the director of national promotions for the record company. My time goes on and, and ultimately I came to work for the Hockey Hall of Fame and I watched quite often as people would come into the Hall of Fame and ask about the same photo that you and I spoke about just moments ago, this yes. famous Tarotsky photo. So I asked the gentleman at the front desk, you know, you know, do you get a lot of those requests? And he said, it's by far our most requested photograph at the Hockey Hall of Fame. Wow. More than the Bobby Orr goal, more than you name the uh, the goal, it would be or the picture and that would be part of it. Yeah. And I said, that's really interesting. And he said, you know what, you should think about writing a book. Well, I had already uh, got the wheels in motion in my head anyway. And it was fortuitous because... Who is uh, volunteering at the Hockey Hall of Fame? Well, it's Anne Barocco. By this time, she's married to a gentleman named Emil Klicinich. So Anne and Emil Klicinich are volunteering at the Hockey Hall of Fame, as well as their youngest son, Barry Klicinich. So it all came together at the same time. I realized, wait a minute, that's the most famous photograph uh, I know a fair bit about the, the goal already, but I'm at the Hockey Hall of Fame where the research is being housed. I've got the family volunteering there, and they're great friends of mine and very open to being involved as well. 
And because the song, this song called 50 Mission Cap, and it was all about the Bill Barocco story, including the goal and, and the tragedy, um, I was able to weave that into the book as well. And because I worked with them, I was able to get deep into the weeds and find out even more. So it seemed as though I was <laughs> destined to write the book, and that's the way it all came together at that point. The, let's talk about the air accident because the goal was scored in April. When did he go on his fatal flight? When, when was the date of his fatal flight? Yeah, it was August 24th. Yeah, Friday, August 24th of 1951. So from the time that he scored the goal, he went to, you know, he, he tended some, to some things in Toronto, um, you know, the, the portrait of the team with the Stanley Cup at that time. There was a parade. Um, and then he spent some time there. He actually owned a store with his brother in, uh, in Toronto as well. They sold, of all things, fishing rods and records and, and records being music discs and appliances and things of that sort. And then he spent the better part of the summer in Timmins with his mother, and his sister and his buddies up there and just you know really having a good time and one of the uh, the dentists who was a friend of his who didn't it wasn't his personal dentist but they were great friends gentleman by the name of dr henry hudson and he was uh, a real sportsman really enjoyed uh, hanging out with the boys and and uh, spinning some stories and he invited many people but ultimately he invited bill to go on a fishing trip to end the summer so on august 24th they take off and uh, head up to a place called Seal River in northern Quebec to go uh, fishing for Arctic char. The, uh, the irony, I guess, is that Bill loved to fish, but he hated the taste of fish, but he loved the, uh, the game behind it. So they go on the fishing trip on August 24th, have a great time, catch all kinds of fish as we were to understand. They're coming back on Sunday, August 26th, and they refuel in a little place called Rupert's House, which is now called Waskaganish. It's got an indigenous name now, and that's the last time they were seen by anybody. They never arrived back at their destination, and as we found out many years later, 12 years, or sorry, 11 years later, but as we found out subsequent to that, the, the plane crashed in, uh, in the unforgiving forests of Cochrane, Ontario, just north of Cochrane, Ontario, and, and that's where bill and dr hudson lost their lives any was there any official determination what led to the crash was it engine failure pilot error any official uh, verdict nothing official but there are a number of things number of things rather that uh, that played havoc with it first of all it was it was uh, bad weather mm. and in in fact the people where they were refueling said listen why don't you guys spend the night here it was a lodge as well why don't you spend the night here and, and uh, wait until the weather blows over and go and Dr. Hudson said, no, no, we, you know, we've got some commitments back in Timmins. Uh, we're going to make the trip. Now, he had been a bit of an adventurous flyer. When I use the term adventurous, I put quotation marks around it. Mm. He had some near accidents uh, a couple of times before. He, he took risks that most pilots wouldn't, uh, wouldn't take at that point. But it was a, a combination, it's perceived anyway, of, of pilot error and bad weather as well. And maybe having the, uh, the weight of the, the small Fairchild 24 uh, plane a little bit too heavy, whether it be from the number of fish that they caught, which is very possible, um, plus they had their, their gear and their, their sleeping bags and all of those things too. So it could have been all of those things conspiring together to, to cause the fatal, uh, the fatal crash. Kevin, hypothetical question. If Bill Barocco had not died and 
you know, he had li- he lived a long life. Do you think he could have achieved Hall of Fame status as a, an NHL defenseman, in your opinion? You know, I've been I've been kicking that thought around for a long, long time, and and I'm not really sure. First off, just to, that dynasty that I mentioned, you know, the four Stanley Cup championships in five years, included Jimmy Thompson, who was uh, an all-star defenseman, uh, Gus Mortson, who was an outstanding defenseman as well, uh, Wally Stanowski, who's well-known and was a terrific defenseman, Fern Flamin, who's in the Hockey Hall of Fame too, so that they were already really, really solid on defense, and if I dare say, he was probably the third best uh, defenseman on the team at that particular time. Mm. That doesn't mean that he's not Hall of Fame worthy. When you think about the stats, I mean, by the age of 24, he'd already been on four Stanley Cup championship teams. Uh, he scores the Stanley Cup winning goal. He was known as being one of the, the better defensive defensemen in the entire NHL at that point. Terrific body checker, uh, could uh, could move the boys in front of the net, not afraid to drop the gloves when, uh, when the occasion called on it too. So it's so hard for me to, to project whether he could have or not. When you talk about his, his or when you talk to his colleagues, and, and most, in fact, all but one are gone now, um, they would tell you, people like the captain, Ted Kennedy of the team, said he was absolutely a Hall of Fame-worthy defenseman, um, you know, projecting forward with his career. Um, Harry Watson, also in the Hockey Hall of Fame, said the same thing. So... You know, they know them far better than you or I ever could through our, our reading. I would have to think that he would be in consideration. So tough to say. He played five seasons, won the Stanley Cup four times. It's pretty good credentials to start off with anyway, Matthew. Yeah. And the thing is, if he had lasted long enough, he could have been there for the punch Imlock dynasty. I mean, hypothetically, don't you think? Oh, absolutely. Well, there were players. So... So the, when Barocco passed away, he needed to have his spot on defense uh, filled, and then they had a guy named Hugh Bolton who who stepped in. Bolton broke his leg really severely. He, he continued to play after it healed, but he never was the same defenseman again. But the defenseman who took his spot was Tim Horton. Wow. And yeah, and so Tim Horton played right through until the 70s. Uh, he had started his career in the 1940s as well. So he was kind of of the same same ilk as uh, Bill Barilka was. Um, one of the guys who played with with Bill, well, more with Bill's brother Alex, actually, in Timmins on a, a team called the Holman Pluggers was Alan Stanley. Yes. Alan Stanley was a couple years older than Bill. He continued to play through those Stanley Cup championships in, in Toronto, too. So you're absolutely right. There's no reason to think that should he have survived, he couldn't have been part of that uh, that second dynasty as well. Unfortunately, the fates weren't uh, in his favor. Now, Kevin, you've got two new book releases coming out this year. Is that correct? Can you please tell our listeners all about them? <laughs> well, I appreciate you saying that. Thank you. Well, so one just came out, and it's kind of fun. What I've had the great luxury as a as an author, you you know what it's like to talk to a great number of people, and and I've had the great luxury to do the same thing. And so, whenever I was talking to anybody who played with the Toronto Maple Leafs. I asked them what it meant for them to wear the blue and white of the Maple Leafs. And I got wonderful, wonderful answers. And some were one sentence long and some were 10 minutes long. But uh, but, it, but it was terrific stuff that I just collected. And, and I never really had a home for it. And then I started to realize, wait a minute, I've got about 250 of those. So I thought, you know, I could uh, turn this into something. So I, I continued my search and, and 
contacted a number of other players, uh, current players, other players that I hadn't been able to reach in the past, uh, people opening doors for me to other players as well. And I was able to bring it up to just shy of 500. It's not all hockey players. I also have celebrities too. Anne Murray, the, the singer, and uh, and uh, Commander Chris Hadfield, the astronaut, etc., who were all Leaf fans and gave me what it meant for them to uh, to be fans of the Maple Leafs. So I put it all together, and I've got a book called uh, Voices in Blue and White, and the pride and passion of the Toronto Maple Leafs. And, and so that's just, just come out and having some fun with that. Later on this year, I'll have the, uh, the autobiography of, of Corey Hirsch. Corey is a really interesting guy. He didn't play for very long in the NHL, won a, a cup as the third goaltender for the New York Rangers, played with the Vancouver Canucks, uh, kind of turned into a, a bit of a, a gypsy after that. The problem was that Corey suffers from mental health challenges, mm. OCD, depression. And so it's as much a book about mental health as it is about hockey. And we're hoping that we can help some people uh, through the, the book as well. It really was what derailed his uh, career, which had started off with such great promise and went from there. So both books out this year, and we'll keep our fingers crossed that uh, there are some other great books out there too for the readers who are listening to your show right now, because uh, there's always some great treasures coming out of, uh, of authors about hockey. Kevin, where can... Where can people find your books, these your new releases, and also your past works, your magnificent list of past works? Where can people find your works? Well, first off, thank you so much for such uh, wonderful words. It really makes me very, very pleased. Uh, Amazon.com is a, is a great place to get hold of them there. Uh, if people want to come to my website, kevinshayhockey.com, they can uh, can check those out. Not all of them are available, but a great number of them are, and be happy to sign them and ship them off to people if they're so interested as well. Um, so, yeah, and, and, and as we often say as authors, better bookstores everywhere. Um, my uh, my current book, The Voices in Blue and White, is self-published, so it's, it's Amazon.com and my website only. The other ones will be available at you know, the Barnes and Noble stores and for those Canadian listeners at the Indigo chain, et cetera, et cetera. And that'll come up this fall. Kevin, after the release of these two new books that you just told our listeners, do you have a future book project or projects in mind? And what, what can you give us a little glimpse of what they might be in the future? Sure. Wow. Well, it's almost like a chess game. I'm, I'm always thinking ahead and trying to think of the next move. There's a book that I've always, always wanted to to uh, to write, and it's a personal book. It's, it, but it's involved with hockey too. Surprise, surprise. Um, in the 1940s, there was a hockey player by the name of Jack McLean, and he would be unknown to and everybody other than the most rabid historian. But by fluke, I found out that he was my great uncle. Oh, and so this is my Tuesdays with Maury type book. I didn't know he was part of the family, but I, I was introduced to him uh, later in his life and we became the best of friends. And, and really, you know, he, he helped me and I helped him and, and uh, it's quite a story. And when he passed away, I was able to, uh, through his, his family, they sent me the Stanley Cup ring that he had from 1945 when he played on that uh, championship team. So I wear it very proudly now and, and uh, relish the time that I had with my great uncle Jack. So that's the book that I really, really want to write. I don't know whether I'll get to it next year or the year after or whatever, but uh, every 
every once in a while I'll write a few more pages and find a little more research on it and move forward with that one. So hey, somewhere down the road, hopefully there will be a, a chance for people to buy to buy uh, Jack and the Box, and that's uh, the story of uh, of my discovery of Jack McLean. Kevin, whenever I interview an author, I always ask this standard question because I'm always curious. When you were growing up, who were your favorite authors whom you loved to read? And of those favorite authors that you loved, did any inspire you to become a writer and author in your own right? Or perhaps they may have influenced your own personal writing style? Well, I was a voracious reader from the time I was a kid. Uh, I, I, I played all kinds of sports. I was good in school and stuff too, but I loved, loved, loved to read when most of my peers couldn't, uh, couldn't be bothered picking up a book at the age of seven or eight or nine or whatever it happened to be. So I can remember that some of the early books I got were a series of books by Sky Young. The father of Neil Young, the musician. Wow. Scott Young was a, a terrific hockey writer for the Globe and Mail up here in Toronto, and, and well, up here in Canada, although it was based in Toronto. And Scott Young had books called, you know, Scrubs on Skates and the Boy at the, the Boys at the Leaf Camp and and things of that sort. They were all fiction at that point. He'd written others as well, but the ones that my parents bought me when I was a young boy were were these uh, this trio of fictional books, and I just ate them up with a spoon. They were just great. And it really, really inspired me in many ways. But there were so many books. I mean, I just, I read so many and I start, I started getting them for Christmas when I was a young boy and have quite a collection now. I don't know that my style was inspired by, by uh, Scott Young or anybody else in particular. I love to read the newspaper reports that the journalists at the time wrote. They're so colorful. They're so so terrifically riveting and I love that uh, style and I picked up a little bit of this but of uh, that rather but this is going to surprise many people I'm a big uh, big fan of the Walton's TV show and John Boy on the Walton's TV show was a writer and, and uh, an aspiring writer and I met him at one point and uh, and sat with him not for very long he was in in Toronto for uh, 12 Angry Men a play that was being put on at the time and and uh, I sat with him for a little bit and he was the one who really motivated me is is if you have a dream go and achieve it he did the same with his acting career he says Kevin you know and he'd read a couple of things that I had sent to him and and uh, he really helped motivate me. So I didn't pick up on his style because I don't really know what his style is, but I find a little bit of Walton's in my writing. So as ludicrous as it sounds, you, you get your inspiration from wherever you can find it, Matthew, as, as you know so well as well. You know, you talk about your, your new release, what it means to wear the, you know, be a fan of the Toronto Maple Leafs or wear the uniform. Isn't it true? Toronto, it's not just a local interest in the Toronto area. It's a truly national interest, isn't it? I mean, there's a thing called Leafs Nation, isn't there? Oh, boy, is there ever. Well, and so you have to think back to the early days of Hockey Night in Canada and a broadcaster by the name of Foster Hewitt. You have to remember at the time that that radio was was a burgeoning vehicle. Um, you know, there was no TV, there was no internet at that point, and I'm talking about the 1920s now. And so, when radio came out, it was a great form of entertainment for families right across the country, going right into the Depression time. So when things were bleak, you had very few things to look forward to. But one of the things that you had was knowing that Hockey Night in Canada was going to be on the radio on Saturday nights. And the only team that they broadcast across the country 
with the Toronto Maple Leafs and whoever they were playing that particular week. So there would be people listening to the Leafs and you got to know Charlie Conacher, Joe Primo, Red Horner, uh, Busher Jackson, Turk Broda. You got to know all these, these names. They became household names and people visualized them. Of course, they, they couldn't see them because there was no such thing. You might see their picture in the paper, in the newspaper or something, but you really had no idea. But it was what your your listening was all about. It was all your entertainment at the time. And then TV comes along in 1952, and you got a chance to see the pictures now of the team. And all of a sudden, Foster Hewitt, who had done the radio broadcasts, is doing the TV broadcasts as well. So it's a familiar voice. It's on Saturday nights as well, just like the radio broadcasts were. But now you can see them. And as time went on, I think it became generational. So in my case, it was my... My grandfather, who was a huge Leaf fan from the 1920s and 30s, my dad uh, was born in 1926. He grew up at the feet of his father, who was a big Leaf fan already. So he became a Leaf fan as I was a kid. Every Saturday night, it was my brother and I sitting on the couch with my dad watching the Toronto Maple Leafs on Hockey Night in Canada. I became a big Leaf fan as well, and I, I wasn't blessed with any children, or they'd be Leaf fans too, I tell you, Matthew, but uh, but I, I do believe it's generational, and it goes back to the early days of radio, Hockey Night in Canada, and Foster Hewitt. Kevin, I want to thank you so much for appearing on my show, and I wish you best of luck on your literary endeavors, and I want you on my show again, okay? It'd be my absolute pleasure. This has been so much fun, Matthew. You're a terrific interviewer, and I've enjoyed being on the show. Thank you very, very much. You take care, and you and your family be safe, okay? Same to you. Stay well. Okay, bye-bye. Stay tuned, ladies and gentlemen, for next week's show, where I will be interviewing hockey author Jeff Kirbyson. Thank you, and good night.